WBCA Radio is proud to present City Talk, where fascinating conversation is alive and well, with your host, Boston Radio veteran, Ken Meyer. Here's Veritech, grounded to short his first time. He's 0 for his last 13. Let's see if the Red Sox play a little hit and run here. There goes the runner. The pitch is swung on, bounced into right field. The base hit. Picks and turns second. He's heading for third. You can smell that one coming. Hit and run single by Veritek. Scooting on over to third is Nixon. And the Red Sox have runners at first and third with one on and a run hole. Well, I hope you recognize that voice. And if you do, you should be very happy because he is our guest for today's broadcast. His name is Jerry Truppiano. He was with the Boston Red Sox for 14 years, and as far as I'm concerned, provided a box seat for every one of us right behind home plate. True, it's a real thrill to have you and be able to talk to you. And it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. All right. Uh, you grew up in St. Louis. Uh, well, I, I, yeah, I was born in St. Louis. People are still wondering if I ever grew up. <laughs> Were your first words, holy cow, after listening to Harry Carey and Jack Buck? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they, they, they were early. They were early. <laughs> and and your one of your first jobs was in St. Louis. How did you wind up getting that job and working with those two guys? I uh, went to St. Louis University, uh, our, and they had a campus radio station. It was on the third floor of a condemned building. Uh, I did a record show. Back in those days, you changed your name. Even though nobody was listening, the radio station, third floor condemned building, the uh, the area it broadcast to would would be two blocks within the the side of the building. Uh, it went into the dorms. Uh, as a matter of fact, one night we tried to give away some some giveaway items that Anheuser Busch gave us, and nobody called. We finally said we'll throw in five dollars, and a student nurse, uh, a, a student from the nursing uh, uh, school, said, "I need the five dollars. You can keep the rest of it." And we finally got somebody to call. But anyway. Uh, I used to do a record show from noon to one under the uh, uh, assumed name of Jerry Stevens and uh, KMOX Radio, one of the great radio stations in this country, uh, based in St. Louis, called looking for somebody to work with the football broadcasters. The person they were looking for was a neighbor of the great Robert Hyland, the general manager at KMOX, legendary broadcast name. And... uh, that student wasn't there. He was the senior station manager. He wasn't there. They said, we need to fill this job. Do you know anything about football? I said, yeah, I got the job, worked with the football broadcasters uh, through, through the football season. They let me go afterwards. A month later, they hired me back as a producer. And that's where I got to meet uh, Harry Carey and work uh, with Jack Buck and the great Dan Kelly and, and Bob Starr, the best football broadcaster I ever heard on radio. So that, that, that to me was like getting the equivalent of, of a, a master's degree from Harvard, uh, working with those folks. Did you, did you watch Joe Buck grow up, or was he out of the or out of, uh, working independently by then? You want to know how old I am? I'm not going to tell you my age. No. When, when, when Joe was born down in St. Petersburg, Florida, it was during spring training, Jack called the station to, make, uh, to tell everybody that, that uh, his wife Carol had delivered, and the person who took that phone call was me. <laughs> so, so I'm going on. I'm going on a few anniversaries of my 39th birthday. 
<laughs> and I, I still hear, I, I still hear from Joe every now and then. Do uh, you? Yeah, great guy. A terrific family. First of all, a terrific family. If, if anybody ever had the pleasure to meet Jack Buck, uh, a great, great broadcaster, an even better person. And I never Joe, did. Joe is following in his footsteps. I talked to him on the phone once, but that's as close as I ever got. Um, and of course, everybody will remember that great call that he gave on the Kurt Gibson home run in the 88 World Series. And he yeah. said, I don't believe what I just saw. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody will ever forget that. Yeah. It's funny. I was talking with some people about that earlier this morning. Just uh, one of the all-time great calls. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Well, Scully's wasn't bad either. No. Um, It'd be hard to, hard to beat those two to open with, huh? <laughs> All right. So, so you went from St. Louis. You didn't go directly to Houston, did you? Yes, I did. Yes, did, I did you really? Yeah. Uh, I got out of the Army, went back to work at KMOX, um, and was just walking through the newsroom one day. I, I had sent uh, letters, audition tapes to just about every minor league hockey team going because I really fell in love with the sport of hockey once the blues arrived. And uh, I, I, I sent out tapes for baseball, for football, got, got nothing in return. So uh, I was walking through the newsroom one day and the late Bill Wilkerson, uh, who was then a newsman, later became the play-by-play -play broadcaster for the St. Louis football Cardinals. And, and people knew I wanted to be on the air. And, uh, he said, uh, Troop, do you uh, know anything about this, this new uh, hockey league, the World Hockey Association? I said, well, I know they're starting in about a week. He says, did you contact them? I said, I said, they're starting in a week. Everything's probably filled. He says, well, I've got their PR directors. He sent me a letter, and it's in my office. Maybe I ought to just give them a call. So he gave me the letter. I called the gentleman, Lee Mead, who was the league PR director. He said, man, do I wish you would have called yesterday. The Houston Arrows are looking for a play-by-play -play guy, but they were going to fill it today. He said, you know, it wouldn't hurt to give him a call. So I, I called, and uh, the general manager was named Jim Smith. The PR director was Sonny Tate, who used to be the PR director for the Cincinnati Reds. They were both familiar with KMOX, which was heard in 42, or can be heard, in 42 of the 50 states. So I called down there and they said, you know what, we were going to fill it today, but since you're from KMOX, if you, this was on a Friday now, they said, if you can get us something and have it here by Monday, we'll give a listen, we'll see what happens. So I mean, I put it together and, and shipped it out and it got to them Monday. And yeah. it, was, it was, this is how long ago it was. I used to love watching Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show. This was when he was working five days a week. So that night in our apartment, I'm sitting with my wife, just did not, did not hear anything from the Houston Arrows. Uh, it gets, I stayed up, we watched the Carson monologue. I said, man, I, I, they're not calling. I was really disappointed. And I got up to go to bed. She was gonna stay up and watch TV. I got up to go to bed. The only phone we had was in the kitchen. As I walked to the kitchen and to go to our bedroom, uh, the phone rings. And it's Sonny Tate, the, the PR guy. He said, can you be in Houston tomorrow? We want to talk to you. Uh, I said, yeah. I had never been on an airplane in my life. Uh, had my wife call KMOX. The, the talk was back then, if you left KMOX, it was the end of the world. You never left KMOX. KMOX left you. 
So I was scared to death. If I didn't get the job, I'd lose my opportunity at KMOX. So I had my wife call in, tell them that I was sick. I can't come into work. So I go, I fly down to Houston and they had me sit around all day. It's, it's a few days. It's four days before the season opens. So people are scurrying about. It was a skeleton staff. I think they had, I think they had four employees at that time. And, uh, and I didn't, I didn't bring a toothbrush, didn't bring a change of clothes. I was supposed to come in and fly right back out. But they, they were so busy, they didn't talk to me. They said, stay over, we'll get your hotel room, and we'll talk at dinner tonight. Well, we, we went to dinner that night. I, I went to the hotel they put me up in. We met the next morning uh, after sitting around for another couple of hours. They said, uh, the job is yours if you want it. I said, yeah. So then I, I, I came back to St. Louis. Uh, and uh, told my wife, and, and, and then I, I go to work at KMOX, and, and I, I'm nervous as anything about breaking the news that I'm leaving, because I wanted to leave on good terms. So I told Jack Buck, he and Dan Kelly were really the two closest of my mentors at, at KMOX. And, and I said, Jack, I said, you know, I'm producing all your, all your pregame shows for, for the uh, football Cardinals this weekend, even though he did the pregame show for the Cardinals, even though he was doing a CBS game on national TV. So we, we needed to put all that together during the week. And I said, as soon as, as Mr. Highland hears, and we still call him Mr. Highland, we thought when he died, he'd come back after three days. We, we, we would genuflect by his office when we walked by. He was, he was a, a genius in broadcasting. So I said, Jack, I said, as soon as I tell Highland or Mr. Highland, you know, he's going to, he's going to tell me to get lost and I don't want to leave you in the lurch. So who's walking down the hall just then? It's, it's Bob Highland. So Jack open, Jack was the only one. He was very close to Mr. Highland opens the door. He says, he says, Bob Troop's got a job broadcasting hockey down in Houston. He's staying until we get this done as far as the pregame with the Cardinals. And then he's, uh, and then he's, he's taking off, has to go to Houston. They open this weekend. So Mr. Highland looks at me and he, if you ever saw a picture of Robert Highland, looked very sim similar to Cary Grant, a striking looking gentleman, about 6'2", 6'3", just a striking figure. He looks at me and he says, when you're done here, you come see me. I go, oh, great. He's going to fire me as soon as we're, we're done with the production today. So I'm sweating bullets all day. I go, uh, we get done. I, I go to see Mr. Highland in his office. He says, sit down. I know it's coming. He says, if you ever want to come back here, the door is open. And it just blew me away. <laughs> and one of my biggest disappointments in my broadcasting career, years later, after doing the Arrows, and, and Rockets, uh, I took over the Rockets TV job after the arrows folded and, and got into football, whatever. He called me, wanted me to do 10 games for the Blues that Dan Kelly had conflicts with. And I could only do two of the 10 because of conflicts I had. And that was one of my biggest disappointments that I had to, I had to disappoint Bob Hyland and I couldn't do any play-by-play -play on, on uh, KMOX. Yeah, that's too bad. I mean, I've heard Kelly. I mean, he was very good. Oh, he, he was, was terrific. He was an excellent announcer. I had a chance to meet him when that when St. Louis came to Boston one night uh, when I was working at at BZ, and he was a real gentleman and a, yeah. and a real good guy. Yeah, a real good guy, and was there right in the beginning. And I've heard a recording of Red Berenson scoring six goals in one hockey game. 
Yeah. When when he was broadcasting it against the Flyers. Yeah. <laughs> well, you got a good memory. I, w- um, I was working in a grocery store back then, and I had a. Ra- I, I was such a blues fan. I had a radio in the back room. I worked in the produce department, and and the the butcher, the night butcher, wanted to know, wanted to keep up with the score. I said, "It's one to nothing. Berenson's got a goal." And then I tell him, "He's got two goals. He's got three. He's got four. <laughs> Hard to believe." Yeah, it was a, that was a great game. I would have loved to have heard that broadcast. All yeah. right, you you did you started doing baseball as well. Is that your favorite sport? Yeah, yeah. I I knew at nine years old I wanted to be a, a baseball announcer. Uh, and, and funny thing is, we were playing wiffle ball in the backyard, and I hit one over the fence into Mrs. Bussey's yard. And as the ball, which in my mind is traveling 390 feet, uh, if not further, is probably going no more than, than, than 23 feet or so. But as the ball is going into the air, a giant trajectory is so magnificent to the eye. I'm calling it like Harry Carey as a nine-year-old. <laughs> and it's got all of, what, 23 feet. Did you, did you do what John Miller did, like uh... – sit around and, and broadcast imaginary ball games or take a tape recorder with you to a ballpark and, and broadcast a game in a box seat? I, I was very lucky. I, I was extremely lucky. I used to turn off a little 12 to 17 inch TV, black and white, turn the volume down and, and practice that way. But once, once Jack Buck took an interest in me uh, and, and asked what I wanted to do in the business and I told him, he says, how about if I get you an empty booth over at the ballpark? This is the days before there wasn't, there, there wasn't the media crush back then that there is now. And he said, I'll get you an empty booth. We'll get you a press pass. If you can get a tape recorder, you go over there, you do some games, and I'll listen to them and I'll critique them. And man, oh man, I had a 20-pound <laughs> voice of music reel-to-reel tape recorder. I fashioned a desk microphone out of it and I took a, a broken desk lamp put some uh masking not basking tape but, but some uh uh tape around it to hold the microphone there and I, I practiced games and uh, uh Harry Carey when he was fired I did that for a couple of years Harry Carey when he was fired in St. Louis he's coming out of KMOX as I'm going in he said kid he says, you've got more tapes in two years than I've got in 26 years with the ball club. He says, you're going to be all right. And the funny thing is, you talk about coming full circle. Uh, let me know if I'm getting too long-winded here, please. No, uh, not at all. Uh, to tell you how things work in this day and age, and Jack would also get me into a, a booth the, during the football games uh, at, at Bush Stadium. But that, and, and Dan Kelly would get me in the press box at KMOX, so I had – I had a great opportunity to, to practice. But my, I was going to say, in this day and age, the way bro- baseball broadcasting is set up, if you're in the postseason, uh, it goes this way. Fox gets the home TV booth in whatever park the teams are playing in. ESPN, or now it's the MLB network, but back, back in 2004, ESPN International would get the visiting TV booth. Home radio stays in their home booth. Visiting radio booth goes to ESPN radio, and the visiting team has to go to an auxiliary booth. Now, growing up in St. Louis in 2004, the Red Sox and Cardinals in the World Series, I broadcast the 2004 World Series 
from the booth I used to practice in as a kid. That auxiliary oh, boy. booth. That auxiliary booth down the first base line. How, about How that? do you like that for an irony? How do you like that? Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, Marty Brenneman talks about the first game he ever broadcast, and Hank Aaron hit his 714th home run in huh. his broadcasting debut. Do you remember your first games with both Houston and Boston? Uh, I, yeah, yeah. I, my, my first game with Houston was a spring training in both, for both, both teams. Uh, as far as the regular season, uh, I, I remember more so my Red Sox uh, first game because Mike Greenwell hit a triple to knock in a couple of runs at Kansas City, and the Red Sox won that game. I, my very first Red Sox broadcast was a Twins-Red uh, Sox game in Fort Myers where the Red Sox were just getting hammered in, at Lee County Stadium, the home of the Twins. And I, I remember the people at WEEI, it was, it was WRKO back then. Uh, we were on the AM station, WRKO, and the general manager – uh, got a hold of me and said that that he had never heard such positive reaction because I, I was I was saying things like Joe Hesketh, who was with the Red Sox at the time, was get, just getting lit up in that spring training game, uh, and we were making fun. I like to use a sense of humor along the way. There, there were beyond the left field fence, there were some cows, and they were getting closer and closer to the left field behind the left field fence. There was no seats back there. So Kirby Puckett hits a home run, and all of a sudden those those cows start to scatter. And when, the next time he looked up, and I, I said uh, something along the lines that everybody in in for the Twins has has at least a couple of hits today or has scored today, uh, other than Harmon Killebrew, who has <laughs> long since been retired. And, and that uh, they kind of liked it. I, my first one for the Montreal Expos, I remember that. They won in the bottom of the ninth at home against the Pittsburgh Pirates when uh, Tom, I believe it was Tom Foley got a bases loaded walk to force in the winning run. And, and he had a good, got good reaction there. Houston, I, I don't remember my, I, I know my first game was a spring training game with the Astros and Yankees. And I, I don't recall a whole lot because I, in all honesty, I tried to, try to X out some of those Houston days early on because I worked with, with two broadcasters who are now in the hall of fame. One became a very good friend. The other completely hated me and it was a very uncomfortable situation. Neither one really wanted me there when I first joined. Uh, but I won over one of them and became a very good friend. And that's Gene Elson. Ah, yes. And then, and the other gentleman, I mean, that was Milo Hamilton. Yeah. 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 Um, now, Jerry Coleman told me once that I asked him what he learned from Mel Allen and Rudd Barber when he broadcast for the Yankees. And he said, Barber taught him how to report. Mel Allen taught him showmanship. What tips did you learn from some of the various broadcasters that you worked with? Oh, my goodness gracious. Nobody, nobody sold the game of baseball or could make a broadcast sound as exciting as Harry Carey. I align more with Jack Buck because Harry could get carried away. It's no pun intended. Harry yeah. could, could get carried away 
uh, even to the point, I'll remember one night when uh, I do a very poor imitation of Harry. I'll try it here. He said, Jack will be on the bases are loaded, two outs bottom of the ninth, Cardinals down by a pair, and Jack will be along with the wrap-up show as soon as Ken Boyer strikes out with the bases loaded. <laughs> Strike three, Jack will be along in a moment. <laughs> you know, I mean, he, he could get on players. He really could get on players. But I, I loved it. He, he was the one who, who turned me on to broadcasting and, and to baseball because of his excitement. Jack was more a, a, a guy who would give, you, would give you the facts, would give you the strategy of the game without second-guessing, would keep you on the edge of your seat also uh, in the dramatic moments, would, would come along with a sense of humor, uh, and, and just was – was a wordsmith, if you will. Uh, Dan Kelly, Dan Kelly, with with the excitement and the and the ability to stay on top of the puck for every pass, uh, was was an influence in hockey. Bob Starr could set up a play uh, like like nobody else in football, uh, and and just being around those guys, listening to those guys, and analyzing how they did it. And, and, and there's an influence of all of those folks in my broadcast, but at the same time, you have, you have to have a lot of yourself in there. You're, you're, you're influenced by people and, and you learn and, and you, you appreciate what people have done. But so many guys in recent years tried to, tried to emulate Vince Scully. There's only one Vince Scully. Yeah. There may never be another one. Uh, but but okay, you can be influenced, but you have, if you're going to, if you're going to sustain a career and have longevity, you, you have to have a lot of yourself in there. You just can't be a clone. Now, did you replace Bob Starr when he left the Red Sox to go back to the Angels? Yeah. 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 All okay, right. It's funny. That's a funny story. I heard he was going back to the Angels. So I called him. They were on the road for the last series of the year. And I said, Bob, I'd, I'd love to work with you out in Anaheim. Uh, he says, well, you know what? You ought to call these folks here in Boston because they'll need somebody here. And I did. And that worked the rest, out. The yeah. rest is history. Yeah. Now, tell me, take me back to some of those years and some of those highlights. I, I know Wakefield came in 95 and had an incredible year. But talk about some of those early highlights that, that I'm sure you can remember about various players. And, and I think, I'm not sure, Jimmy Williams was the manager at that time. My, my first manager with the Red Sox was Butch Hobson. Ah, Butch. Oh, yes. And then, it, then it was Jimmy Williams. Then it was Jimmy. Yep. Then it, then it was Kevin Kennedy. I believe, right? Yeah, I think so. And then, and then Joe Kerrigan. Yeah. Joe Kerrigan. <laughs> yeah, he didn't like it. And, and uh, then Grady Little. Yep. And then, of and course, Terry Francona. Terry Francona. We should still um, be there. <laughs> a lot of people say that. Yeah. Did you read Francona's book? I did not. I, I want to get a copy of it. I, I, I've not read it. I'd love to. Yeah, it's, it's very good. I did, it's, the, it, I did the pregame show, his pregame show, every night for, what, the three years that we were together, my last three years there. Yeah, he's he's. I've never met him, but he seems like a decent guy, and he, yeah. I think he's back now with Cleveland. He was he out was, almost all last year. Yeah, because of the pandemic and his past health issues. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
What are some of your highlights? Like I know Wakefield had an incredible year in, in 95 and with that knuckleball of his. And what are some of the other things that you can remember? About- uh, I, I think I think this only happened once in the history of Major League Baseball. And I, if I stand corrected, I'd love to know. Uh, the only man to go to both ends of the spectrum in that in the same game, in that he hit into a triple play. Then the next time up, he hit a grand slam. Scott Hatterberg on a Sunday night against the Texas Rangers. Ah, uh, I remember that name. Uh, let's see what else. Uh, the, the worst no-hitter I've ever seen was pitched against the Red Sox in Seattle by, uh, by Chris Basio, who got Ernest oh, yeah. Miles as a pinch hitter on a chopper to short. And to complete the no-hitter, uh, uh, oh, I'm, my mind's going out of the shortstop. Oh, Omar Vizquel bare hands the ball, even though he didn't have to, to throw Riles out to end the game. Uh, John Valentin turning an unassisted triple play and then leading off uh, the next uh, half inning with a home run. Uh, that, uh, David Ortiz, dramatic home run against the Yankees in the American League Championship Series. Uh, then getting the game winner again in extra innings the next night to send it to New York. Uh, I called David's first home run with the Red Sox, an opposite field home run at Anaheim in extra innings to beat the Angels. Anytime he had Pedro Martinez, on the mound, the great Sunday night game against the Yankees when he pitched a one hitter. Uh, oh, what else? What else? Well, there's there's so many memories. I know I'm I'm skipping some. The the Derek Lowe no hitter, the Hideo Nomo uh, no hitter. Uh, just, yep, I remember those. Yeah, I remember those. The uh, Romo, the uh, Hideo Romo was against Baltimore, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And then, then there was the one night we're doing a game in Seattle, and I look behind the third base dugout, and who's sitting there but Dr. Kevorkian. <laughs> really? And I, said, and I said on the air, nobody better mess up tonight. <laughs> you know, I, I was thinking before we started this, I'll never understand why ball clubs let broadcasters go that give such – thrills to the fans and and years of service you gave 14 mal allen gave 18 harry carey gave 20 or 25 uh don orsillo gave a bunch of years even ned martin and they all got let go and i i just don't understand that well uh according to tom warner it was not very important that i could be let go um that that was told to me by the program director wei uh I don't know. It, 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 it's, it's really strange. My job was promised to somebody else uh, three years before it happened. So uh, even without knowing me or hearing me or, or concerning if the fans liked me or not, they, they, they made that move. Yeah, and he was, and he was terrible too. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> um, but he's still working. Still, there, <laughs> yeah, I know. Not here, but he's still working. Yeah, I know, I know. I, I tried to turn the uh, iPhone off when he's broadcasting. Um, there's a lot of people who will still defend Grady Little about what happened with Pedro Martinez in the 2003 playoffs with yeah. New York. Um, did you agree with the Red Sox that they should just out and out fire him? Or I, I, I said that night, I, I said it, I forget who I said it to, but I said that night that, 
he would get fired. He would get fired. Uh, a couple, a couple of things related to that. First thing, and I, and I said this. It was not a second guess. I said this on the air as as Pedro came back out for the uh, eighth inning. I said with because the bullpen had been the strength of that team during that series and in the postseason. The bullpen with with Alan Embry and Mike Timlin uh, was doing a terrific job uh, in, in that series. But you you to me, you never ask a competitor to compete. When, when Pedro came off after the bottom of the seventh, just beating on his chest where his heart is, pointing to the sky, saluting his father, mentally, he's finished, okay? Then he goes to the dugout, and Grady Little asks him to go, can you give me one more inning? He's not going to say no. He's going to go back out there. But, it, it, and I said on the air that, I said on the air that I, this thing has the potential to really, I didn't use these exact words, but the gist of it is, this thing really has to, has the potential to go off the rails, bringing Pedro back. So so normally when at Yankee Stadium, to my left, that booth would be occupied by Brian Cashman, the uh, uh, general manager of the Yankees. But during that, during that playoff series, uh, ESPN Radio was in there. So John Miller and Joe Morgan were there. I, I had never in my life spoken to Joe Morgan. I, I had seen him be less than less than complimentary on two occasions to fans. And and I, I had never spoken to him. So he had the seat immediately to my left around the glass. He reaches around the glass, sticks his head around the glass, and says to me, it's the only time I've ever talked to him in my life. He says, that is the worst managerial decision. I have ever seen. And I said, well, you know, it's, it could wind up costing him. It's, and that's, that's all I've ever said to Joe Morgan, who has since passed away. So the reason I felt that Grady Little was going to get fired, if you'll remember that year, they still had a chance to win the division late on in the year, but Grady in a day-night doubleheader, all right, in the second game, Rested, I believe, Veritek and Nixon and, and, and a couple of other players of his top-level players, of the usual starters. And we had run into one of the owners after the game in, in the player's parking lot. And he was livid, livid. And he was not shy about what he was saying about his manager. So putting that together with what happened at Yankee Stadium that night, when they lost that series, and especially losing it the way they did on the Aaron Boone home run off Wakefield, you, you had a feeling that the other shoe was going to drop, and it did. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, did you think in the beginning that Frank Conan was the right choice? Because he hadn't done so well when he was manager of the Phillies. Yeah, it was to me, it was a surprise selection. Uh, yeah, so I, I had my doubts at the beginning, but he certainly proved otherwise, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, I guess he did. There's uh, at least two World Series pennants that, that say otherwise. Yeah. Um, 2004, that World Series, I mean, there are so many stories about people, you know, waking up their grandfather or bringing flowers to Fenway in memory of a, a relative or, or something like that. Did Was there anything in your life that, that uh, would, would, would kind of be the same thing? 
Uh, a couple of stories there. First of all, it cost me a lot of money because it was in St. Louis and to buy tickets for my wife's family and my, my family, and those tickets weren't cheap. Plus, taking them out to dinner in Mike Shannon's restaurant the night before game three. So that series wound up costing me a lot, a lot of money. <laughs> but what, one, of, one of the best stories that I heard was uh, uh, told to me by, uh, by a gentleman who used to work at, at ABC News. And uh, he, he, went, he, he went into his uh, uh, local establishment. Uh, he's retired, lives down on, on the Cape. And uh, they were telling him the story of, of, of what happened, that this uh, customer goes in and, and the waitress who everybody knew was kind of bleary-eyed and, uh, and uh, just seemed very tired in the middle of the day and uh, this was the day after the after the Red Sox won the World Series and they, they said what's wrong you didn't get much sleep were you celebrating last night and she says no I, she said I heard my my husband this morning banging the cabinets in the kitchen he was I, I worked late the night before he was supposed to take our son to school but I see him looking for glasses and he has a bottle of scotch. And it's like, it's like 8.15 in the morning. He's got to get our kid to school. And she says, I'm wondering what, what's going on here. And uh, he says, no, I'm not. Uh, no, no, don't worry about it. Turns out he had the Boston Globe, the Boston Herald. He had a bottle of scotch, two glasses, dropped his son off at school, went to the cemetery, poured his dad a shot and a shot for himself and, and in front of his father's grave, he read all the stories from both papers about the World Series. Ah, that's a that's a great story. Yeah. I like that story. I like that story, and and that was an incredible. I mean, when they were down to the Yankees three to one, I I figured it was nothing. all over. three, three to, nothing. to nothing. Yeah, yeah. I figured it was all over. I said, well, that night. Well, for Game Four, for Game Four, five, six, and seven. I mentioned how close I am to Joe Buck and, and I knew Tim McIver. So mm -hmm. I would stop in their booth every night and say, hey, if, if it ends tonight, have, have a, a great winter and I'll see you next season. And I, but I hope to see you tomorrow night. So that happens game three, game, uh, yeah, game four, five, six. Before game seven, <laughs> before game seven, <laughs> I said the same thing. And then, then they came by the booth and they said, uh, well, well, we'll, we'll see you uh, for game one. Uh, <laughs> and I said the same thing to Frank Cohen. I said, I didn't say, you know, I, I, all I said was, I, I hope I see you tomorrow night. And it, it turned out we did. And how, I, about, you, how about the World Series? How about this? You talk about a team that was almost destined. Remember, in game one and game two of the World Series, in each game, the Red Sox made four errors and still won the games. Yeah, that's right. Yep, yep. Are, are you still close with any of the uh, any of the ex Red Sox uh, after all this time? I mean, do you ever talk to anybody like Veritek or Wakefield or my, my, anybody my like son, that? My son ran into Veritek on on a flight and introduced himself. No, I I, I don't hear from anybody over there uh, anymore. It's, it's funny. I still hear from my hockey guys from the Houston Arrows way back when, <laughs> because now all of a sudden I find out that a bunch of the games are on, uh, on YouTube. 
you can't hide from your past anymore. <laughs> but, uh, no, I haven't. Uh, I don't hear from anybody over there anymore. Uh, no. All right. Couple of questions. If you were on the Hall of Fame selection committee, tell me if you would vote for uh, Pete Rose getting in, and Roger Clemens, and Kurt Schilling. Schilling and Clemens and Bonds, yes. Pete, I would I would hold back because of the gambling thing. And people say, well, he, he never ga gambled, uh, he never fixed games or whatever. But they, they indicated that in certain games, if he was facing, let's say, a, a Greg Maddox or a Tom Glavin or a John Smoltz or so even the Schilling when he was over in the National League or, or uh, Randy Johnson when he got over there, if the top pitchers, he would, he would use his bullpen differently in those games. He would save those arms for a game that he had a better chance to win. So is that fixing games? There, there's enough gray area there to, uh, to, make, you, to make you think that uh, he, he, he wasn't managing to the full extent that he could have managed to, to win a game. So I, I, would, I would think that he will get in, but, and I'm not wishing him any ill will, but I, I think it would be a posthumous uh, induction into the Hall of Fame. Yeah, that's kind of too bad because, I mean, it's been – I mean, I know what he did was wrong, but I mean, it's been how many years? I mean, even criminals get second chances. But but that <laughs> it's it's I, I know what you're saying. But if when you go into the dressing room, if you go in the clubhouse on the door, it's 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 about four feet tall. It is about two and a half feet wide, and it's all the information about gambling and what have you. Uh, He's his own worst enemy at times. I've been around him three times. First time couldn't be more charming. The second time was the, was so rude to my children that uh, it was embarrassing. And third time he he was okay. He was okay. But and there's, there's no prejudice about you know how he acted in front of my kids. But when they were little. But it's just the gambling thing. I, I'm separating that from from steroids or and on the showing thing, if I can pontificate for a moment, what does it matter what somebody's politics are? You're, we're, we're, I say we, broadcasters don't vote on the Hall of Fame. They don't. They should. You can't tell me that Ernie Harwell, Jack Buck, Harry Carey, Vin Scully, Mel Allen, Red Barber couldn't vote for the Hall of Fame. That's, that's malarkey to use the proper term. But, <laughs> but it's supposed to be what did the guys do between the white lines? What, what did they do on the field? Jim Rice was kept out for a lot of years because he didn't get along with certain writers. Now he's all of, his numbers didn't improve, but a younger group of writers have come along, looked at the numbers, and put, put Jim Rice in the Hall of Fame, rightfully so. You can't tell me that Kurt Schilling, one of the all-time best post-game season pitchers in the history of the game does not belong in the hall of fame. When did we come, when did the writers become these moral judges and, and how people should think? And Clemens? Clemens, Clemens, if he, if, if he did use steroids. Okay. And I mentioned Barry Bonds, 
go, go to the pre-steroid era and look at Bond's career and what he was. Look at Clement's career and what he was. Hall of Famers. Do you, do you think that Clemens did use steroids? I, I can't say. I can't say without seeing it. But usually where there's smoke, there's fire. But I, I, I cannot say. I cannot prove it. Uh, there, obviously, there's a lot of suspicion. And, and you cannot tell me that there aren't people already in the Hall of Fame that have used steroids. Remember, remember back in the old days, there were players who used to take what they called the red juice. All right? Right. Which the greenies. The greenies and the red juice. Uh, so uh, not, not everybody in the Hall of Fame is uh, sainthood material. <laughs> All right. Let's talk a little bit, if we can, about the current state of baseball and what's going on. <laughs> You've got another hour. Uh, we good don't, good. but... Uh, <laughs> um, You're going to probably need two hours. To me... <laughs> To me, last year was a joke. I don't even think they should have had a season with 60 games. Seven inning doubleheaders, putting a man on second and extra innings. Yep. What, hap what happened to the game we grew up with? And Good I'm, question. Okay, I'm an old guy, but I'm not just an old guy standing on my porch saying, get off my lawn. Hey, it, if you want an MTV sport, it's not baseball. It's not baseball. And why don't, why, we don't have baseball people running baseball and we don't have owners like gene autry or john fetzer or gussie bush or, or uh, brown in, in in pittsburgh uh guys that that worried about and even george steinbrenner who cared about the the good of the game They're, that that's gone now they're now how about in spring training now if a pitcher throws more than 20 pitches in an inning okay Come on in, get off the field, grab some oranges and popsicles. Uh, we'll, we'll let the other team go out there. And now I had heard, I had heard they're talking about possible five inning games in spring training, seven inning games in spring training. What in the wide, wide world of sports are they doing to the sport? They're ruining it. Yes, yes, they are. And it's they're ruining it. it. it it's a shame. It's a shame. It's 60 feet, six inches. It's, it's 27 outs to win a game. It's three strikes and you're out. Four balls, take a walk. It's, it's a crime is what it is to what they're doing to this game. If, if, they, want to speed, if they want to speed up the game, call me. Tell the umpires, and, and this drives pitchers crazy. Drives pitchers absolutely crazy. I've had, I've had pitchers get on me about this. Tell the umpires, call the strike zone the way it is in the rule book. There was a great Hall of Fame umpire, Doug Harvey, also known as God. <laughs> when, I, when I was in the National League, it, it was, and I've been around him enough to know, and I've heard him say this, guys, today is a getaway day. We have flights. You have charters. We're going to swing the bats today. The strike zone is what I said the strike zone is, or what I say the strike zone is. We're going to swing the bats. We're going to move this game along. Let's go. It, how, how, come, how come baseball in the 1960s and the 1970s, you could play a nine-inning game and get done in under three hours? But today, everybody has to have walk-up music. Everybody today has to step out and, and, 
and just parade around for a little more TV time and they have to get their head together, okay? There's a way to speed up the game without having, without having uh, automatic uh, umpires or, or robot umpires or, or a clock for the pitcher and, and, and putting, a runner on putting a runner on second in extra innings to me is, is such a disgrace. I, I did the World Baseball Classic in 2017 on national radio. And I had the, the Miami, uh, the, I was in Miami, then I went to San Diego. And I had a great game between an undermanned Columbia team and a fully loaded, heavy and talent Dominican Republic team. It was 3-3 going to the bottom of the ninth. Columbia was playing their hearts out. They go to extra innings, top of the 10th, put a man on second. Dominican Republic goes on and scores seven or eight runs. Bottom of the inning, Columbia puts a man on second, and they go out one, two, three, game over. That ruined a terrific game. A terrific game. And maybe, maybe Dominican Republic would have scored eight runs if, the, if they didn't have a runner on second to start it, but we'll never know. Yeah. But I, I always worry when they play the baseball classics because there are ball players I can't think of who at the moment, but a couple have been gotten hurt and had been late yeah. for the start of the regular season. Yeah. And, and let me go back, if you don't mind, can I go back to spring training for just a moment? Sure. Spring training is for pitchers. Hitters will be ready in a couple of days. Spring training is for pitchers to stretch out their arm. You see the pitch count and the inning count extended as spring training unfolds. Now, now you're going to go five innings or seven innings. Watch how many pitchers, and heaven forbid, I'm not wishing anybody ill will, but watch how many pitchers come up with arm problems. <laughs> One of the things that I don't like, and I'm thoroughly disgusted, are these huge contracts that some of these guys are getting, like Garrett Cole with the Yankees, Bryce Harper with Philadelphia. Chacoby uh, Ellsbury signed a big contract with the Yankees and, and didn't play for a lot of it. And I would think that ball clubs would learn by this not to do that, but it doesn't seem to matter. Well, for, for the most part, they're protected. They're protected. They get insurance policy on those guys, so they're not really losing that much money. I, 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 will, I will never begrudge a player as much money as he can make because the, the, the buck stops Again, no pun intended. The yeah. buck stops with the owner. If the owner doesn't want to pay it, don't pay it. Okay, trade him or let him become a free agent. But my 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 attitude has changed. I used to be accused of siding so much with management. I'm kind of on the player side now because I've 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 seen the other side of of management and and they're they're making so much money, which is their right. I have no problem with that. I'm a capitalist. I believe in capitalism. Let let the let the owners make as much money as they can, but let the players. If if the going rate is is uh, thirty million a year for the top player, if if they can afford it and they can pay it, pay it. But I to begrudge the players. The players are not holding a gun to anybody's head to get that money, and it's not and it's not free agency that has driven up salaries the most. It's salary arbitration that has driven up salaries the most. And while I'm venting my spleen, can I vent my spleen on another thing? Sure, by all means. We, we talked about Hall of Famers a little while ago. 
Yep. Jose Canseco should have I... been a Hall of Famer. If you would put Dustin Pedroia's heart in Jose Canseco, he would have been a Hall of Famer. But he, <laughs> he, he, was, he was too concerned. He was too concerned with looking good at the beach. Now he's become a cartoonish individual fighting uh, for a million dollars against some guy from one of the websites or something in a fight that lasted something like 23 seconds before he threw in the set of shoulder hurt. Now, today, today he's putting out, he wants to fight Alex Rodriguez over how, how they, Rodriguez used to date his ex-wife or something. And if, if you follow Twitter and you follow Jose Canseco, every now and then you'll see him saying, I'll be appearing, he's got a car wash somewhere in California or in Florida. He says, I'll be appearing there and signing autographs. Here's a guy who was the first 40-40 guy in baseball, 40 home runs, 40 steals in the same season. Should have been a Hall of Famer, but has become a joke and a sad one at that. Instant replay. Uh, I, I, well, take me, take me back to 1985. I, I'm with the former NFL quarterback Gifford Nielsen having dinner at my family's house in St. Louis, my parents' house. We're in there for the, for the Oilers-Cardinals game we're going to broadcast the next day. It's, it's game six of the World Series. The Cardinals have a one-run lead, uh, bottom of the ninth. Uh, Don Denkinger is uh, yeah. first base umpire. My, my brother, my little brother says, I'm going to go to the parade when it happens because he thinks they're going to win. I said, it's not over yet. They go on and lose that series on, starting with that bad call. I can live with instant replay, but why not have a fifth? And again, I'm spending Major League Baseball's money. Why <laughs> not have a fifth umpire, and he's up in the booth, and, and give him access to replay where we don't have to – God love the umpires, but some of them are not exactly in the shape you, you would think for a Mr. Universe contest, okay, to be kind. So they're, they're a little bit on the portly side, as if all of us aren't. But have them to go over to the dugout and put a headset on and go through all that. Have the guy upstairs as a fifth umpire access to instant replay – and then give them, give them a red light for no, a green light for yes, or a, a large green card or a large red card, and move the game along. Okay, get the calls right, but it's, 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 taking, it's taking too much time. Yeah, and some of those instant replay calls are sponsored. Oh, yeah. yeah well, <laughs> you got to make money somewhere, right? And they, and they do. Yeah. Another but, thing that drives me crazy is during a ball game, at least uh, on the television games, they do an interview with the manager in the middle of a ball game. Yeah. ESPN does it all the time. Right. And drives usually, me nuts. And, and Fox does it all the time. You usually get nothing out of it other than, you know, they. I guess it's a status symbol for the, for the, for the TV networks or the or the local TVs uh, that that do it. Almost just as bad as that is is what they do with the coaches uh, in college football or in the NFL coming off at halftime or coming back from halftime, trying to trying to get a word with those guys. It's worthless. It, it's a it's a gimmick and it's worthless. Yeah. Now, one other question before we talk about what you're doing these days: If you could vote, who would you have 
as a commissioner. Bob Costas. Yeah, you read my mind. Yeah. I mean, he, he cares about the game. He knows the history of the game. If, if Bob didn't want it, that's uh, funny. I talked about this with a former major league executive a while back on this. You would have to find somebody that is independently wealthy, doesn't need the job, but loves baseball. Maybe the second president, George Bush, if he wanted to do it. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I had heard, I heard talk at one time about Larry King doing it. Uh, no, I wouldn't be in favor of that. Uh, <laughs> no, no. Uh, nah, nah, I can't see that one. But it would have to be somebody in, independent, strong-willed, and uh, and didn't need the job, but really loved the game of baseball. So my, my first thought was Costas. Yeah, I would agree with that. Now, tell everybody what you're doing these days. Well, I'm, I'm teaching at uh, – I'm teaching two courses at uh, Dean College in Franklin, Massachusetts, do, doing everything online right now. And this is my uh, second semester at Dean. I'm in my fourth year teaching online, two courses at the University of Houston down in Texas. Um, <laughs> a kid, a kid, somebody that I hired as a University of Houston student, put him on the air on radio when I was sports director at KTRH in Houston by the name of Jim Nance, uh, they, they asked Jim, they wanted to start a, a sports broadcasting part of their uh, uh, legendary uh, Valente communications program at the University of Houston. And when they asked Jim who, who they should hire or who they could get to start the program down there, and Jim, Jim mentioned me. So I'm, I'm in my fourth year down there in, in Houston. Another question. With so much television and everything televised and money controlling what time games start like at quarter to nine at night. Yeah. Is there still a closeness with fans radio broadcasting? Probably not. Probably not. Which is, which is sad because I, I think the state of radio to begin with is in a, in tough shape, in very tough shape. And, and it's, <clears throat> I used to. I, I grew up in St. Louis, living in the Midwest. I could, I could, I could pick up the Cubs broadcasters, the White Sox broadcasters, Ernie Harwell in Detroit. I could hear By Sam, Byron Sam in Philadelphia. I could hear Bob Prince in Pittsburgh. Uh, I could, I could. On certain nights, I could get Gene Elston when it was the Cold Forty Fives, and then became the uh, Astros down in in uh, Houston. Uh, no. It, you, you might you might be hard pressed uh, you might be hard pressed for a, a lot of people to ask them and, and say who who are your local broadcasters because they'll tell you who's on TV but to to me to me baseball baseball on the radio is the absolute last area of creative broadcasting going because on on record on uh, music stations you've got a format to follow tv uh the picture tells the story you're just putting captions on on the picture when you're doing sports on television but in baseball with no clock all right you might have tim wakefield pitching 
and he's very quick in a rapid movement to the game. Or you might have Hideo Nomo pitching, who's taking forever. And there's a woman in the front row knitting a sweater, you know, because the game is moving so slow. And you might have each one of those styles of pitchers in the game you're broadcasting. So you have to be creative. You have to tell stories. You have to let the game breathe. You have to be on top of the play. All right. And, and you have to get out of town scores in there. You have to get uh, commercial drop-ins in there. You, you've got to weave your way through that and do it in a, in, in a creative way and, and get the score in as often as you can. And you've got to do it in such a creative way that, that you're not irritating people, that you're, you're not droning on, that you, 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 have, you have to, as Mel Allen said, you got to entertain and you got to inform. You got to be a reporter and you got to be an entertainer and you got to do it in such a way that people will accept you. You must be accepted. Well, I'll tell you something. A lot of people accepted you here in Boston and I wish they all had the chance to talk to you like I have. You're a real gentleman. And as I said in the beginning of this, uh, you gave everybody a box seat right behind home plate. And you and Joe were always nice to me up in the booth. I can never thank you enough for that. And uh, I just wish you continued good luck in whatever you do and uh, whatever you try and accomplish. Um, because you're a, credit, you're a credit to the game and uh, a good human being. You're very kind. Thanks, Ken. I appreciate it so much. And that will do it for this edition of City Talk. Thanks for listening to another great conversation with Ken Meyer and friends. You can contact Ken by email. The address is kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. That's kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. Tune in next time for more conversation with Ken Meyer on City Talk.